Well, thank you, Pastor Bill. I didn't know that I was causing you to suffer. <laughs> but Christ suffered on the, cry, on the cross, right? And so we, we, take our, we take ourselves to the cross, right? So um, I am happy to be here. I am so thrilled to be here. So I first want to say good morning, Cornerstone Church. Uh, I bring you greetings from New York Covenant Church, which is in New Rochelle. I actually brought you somebody from New York Covenant Church who is going to school here in Boston. Her name is Monet. So she's on loan to you. Please treat her with love today. Raise your hand. Treat her with love. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Bill for inviting me to share the word with you this morning. Uh, My husband and I both went to college here in Massachusetts, so we always love the opportunity to get back here. So I'm going to dig in here. Uh, You know, my husband and I have five kids all together. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, But we have one set of twins, actually, Uh, nine-year-old girls who are here upstairs, Uh, And for any of you that either have kids, that babysit for kids, that teach kids, or just simply remember your childhood, you know that all kids at some point hit up against their parents as they're trying to figure stuff out and kind of find their own identity. There are books and even movies about kids and how they push up against their parental authority. And in an effort to discover themselves, they continue this resistance. That happens in my house as well. Simple things like bedtime can become a struggle. Whether you're a toddler or a teenager, they become a struggle. And parents know from a developmental standpoint, you know, that it makes sense for kids to go to bed. But they also know, doctors tell them, this is a normal part of development. Even the most respectful, well-behaved kids have the temptation to resist their parents. So it's just a part of them growing and learning. And actually, experts will tell you, right, that certain types of resistance, certain types are good, that they're actually, in fact, healthy, that pushing up against authority can sometimes be good. Don't tell my daughters I said that. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you about that, though, from a biblical perspective. I'm going to talk to you about resistance. And so the title of my sermon this morning is actually Bringing Down the House. And that is because I'm going to ask you today to bring down the house. In fact, we know the life of Jesus was all about resisting the ruling authorities, We know the life and ministry of Jesus Christ was one of resistance to the ruling order, the house that was in order, and turning what was accepted as truth while turning it completely upside down. But let me start at the beginning here. I want to impress upon you that it was not only Jesus who led a life of resistance, but in fact that the Bible is full of examples of those who resisted and fought against powerful forces that were considered the rulers of the day. And I believe there is something to be learned through the resistance we see see throughout the biblical text. If we read closely, we see examples of people who fought for those who were oppressed 
And we see examples of people who protected those who were in harm's way. And through these examples in the text, we also see people who confront those with power and influence in their life, and they call, they call on God. The Bible is full of people resisting and fighting for the least of these, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the outcast. So, let's dig in. If you have your Bible, now in, in my church we have, some of us have Bibles, some of us have smartphones, some of us have tablets, some of us have screens, um, and you turn with me to Exodus 1, 15 through 21, I'm going to read from the text, and you can follow along. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So these Hebrew midwives actually did not listen to Pharaoh, and they let the babies live. They let the boy babies live. So in the story of the, this is in the beginning of the Bible, in Exodus, 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 we, right, from the most unlikely people. So let me give you some context. In this passage, we are looking at Pharaoh, who has a bit of a problem. The Hebrew population was growing, and he wanted to curtail their growth. Because he was concerned about their number, he did, he did everything to make their life pretty unbearable. Earlier in the text, he actually tells his people that we must deal with the Israelites shrewdly so their numbers do not grow. In Exodus 1, verse 14, he says, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So ultimately, Pharaoh was concerned that if the Hebrews' numbers grew and war broke out, they might actually help the enemy. So he wanted to get rid of them. So it is in this context, right, that Pharaoh decrees to all that all Hebrew babies, boy babies, would be killed. He would allow the girls to live, but all males would be killed. So it's in this context that he says in verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So at the moment of birth, the midwife was to kill the baby because in those days we would not know the sex of the baby until it was born. Can you imagine that? These Hebrew midwives had no power. They were working women. They weren't part of an elite society. They were women, at the, they were women so they were at the lowest status in society. But it is these very unlikely women knowing that the very existence of their own people were hanging by the smallest of thread, these women resisted the king's orders. Let's read verse 17. It says, 
The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They did not do what the king told them to do. And because they feared God and did what God was telling them to do, God protected them. Verse 18 through 21 says, Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. This story should remind us, church, that killing kids, and let me say, killing boys, whether in Exodus or in the streets of our communities across America, that there is a place for resistance. And this should also remind us about God's protection for us in that place of resistance. Think about that. The midwives saved lives. They saved a nation. And make no mistake, it sounds like a happy ending, but these midwives had no idea what the consequences would do, but they knew God. Think back. Have you ever had those moments when you've done something that you thought God asked you to do? You were not sure, you're not certain, but the only thing you were sure of is that God told you to do it. I imagine that is what it was for these women. They knew what was right and wrong. We all know right from wrong. We know when we see an injustice, and the midwives could have let it happen. But they resisted. They feared God more. They were in a position to be of service to the kingdom of God. They were nonviolent. They didn't break any law, but they resisted. And this story of resistance does not stop with midwives. In fact, the Exodus narrative is one of resistance and liberation for God's people. I ask you today, church, Cornerstone, are there places in your life where you should be resisting, where you should be standing up? The midwives were standing up for those in harm's way. I wonder, church, are we standing up for those in harm's way today? as the church universal, but then also as children of God, people of God, are we standing up? But let me go on, because there's another woman in the Bible whose act of nonviolent resistance, there's lots of people, I'm just going to give you another woman, whose acts of, uh, who saved her people from imminent destruction and oppression. This woman found herself in a position of power, in a position of influence, where she had a seat at the table. And I just want to be clear, just by being citizens of this country, residents of this country, or just by having college degrees, just by having good jobs, many of us are in a position of influence. But I want to talk about this woman, this woman who risked her own power to help others, and in this case, her own people. So let's read together Esther 7. So the king of Hammon went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. 
and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we have merely been sold as, a female, fem- as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no, one, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who dared do such a thing? And such the thing was requesting or asking that the Jews be annihilated. And in these very few lines I just read, Esther saved the fate of her people. By making the request to her husband, who was the king, she spared her people, and she saved a nation. So, again, let me give you some background. Many of you know the story of King Xerxes. He was married to Queen Vashti, Vashti, and one evening, Queen Vashti refused her husband's request to display her beauty to the nobles. Some suggest that the queen was being asked to appear in the nude, and so she refused her husband. But when this happened, the king divorced her. So King Xerxes, being the king, decided he wanted a beautiful new bride, and he called for a pageant so he could pick the most beautiful woman to be his bride. So a woman named Esther was presented to him. She was so beautiful that as soon as the king laid eyes on her, he crowned her queen. So what the king did not know was that Esther was Jewish. She kept her nationality a secret because she knew it would be dangerous if anyone found out she was a Jew. So eventually it came to pass that there was a plot to kill all the Jews in the land. And Esther found out about this plot. So she's Jewish, married to the king. There's a plot, right, to kill all the Jews. And at first, she was scared and was afraid to try and stop the plot by talking to her husband, the king. (laughs) But Esther had a cousin who worked in the king's courtyard, a man named, you guys know, Mordecai. And he urged her to do something about this evil plan, which would annihilate her people, the Jews. So she decided to fast She got word to all the Jews in the land that they should fast for three days and three nights. In this time of stress and uncertainty, Esther turned to God. She fasted, and then she resisted. So with that in mind, let's read again Esther 7, verse 1 through 6. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again Queen Esther, What is your petition? It'll be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. The king decided that the Jews would not be hurt. But it was all because of the request from Esther. Can you imagine what Esther must have felt like as she was talking to the king, asking her to spare, asking him to spare her people? The anxiety, the uncertainty. But she didn't go into battle alone. 
She turned to God first. She did not count to three, take a deep breath, and say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. No. She turned to God first. I want to impress upon you, too, that it was no easy task. She was afraid. The rules were you could not make a request to the king unless he called for you first. In fact, if you did this, you could be subject to death. So Esther was rightfully afraid. And when word got back to Mordecai, though, that her cousin was afraid and might not do anything, he sent a warning to Esther. He said in chapter 4, verse 12, when Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai was telling his cousin, don't think you can turn your back on your people just because you have risen to a certain level of comfort. Church, we can't turn our back on people because we are comfortable. Mordecai understood the power that Jesus had. Not only that, but Mordecai understood and expected that the power would and should be used to help her people that were being harmed and that were being oppressed. Sometimes God puts you in a place for a reason for such a time as this. Sometimes it's not about you at all for such a time as this. Sometimes it is about what you can do for someone else. What you can do for the person that is oppressed. What you can do for the person that is marginalized. And what you can do for the person who is forgotten. Those babies, the midwives saved, were forgotten. Mordecai understood that. Esther finally understood that. And I wonder so many times, do we as Christians understand that? The midwives resisted. Esther, after being urged on by her cousin, she resisted. And in those cases, they confronted a powerful system in the way that they could. But we cannot talk about resistance in the biblical tradition without talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament is clear that Jesus was crucified because he was a threat to the ruling class. He wanted to change the power structure and the way it worked. He was different. He hung out with tax collectors. He helped women who had questionable pasts. He ministered to the poor and sick. And he broke bread with a variety of outcasts. All throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus have confrontations with the ruling authorities. He says things like, the well-fed will go hungry. He tells the pharaohs that their heart is detestable. He tells the rich that it will be very hard for them to enter into heaven. And he warns his disciples not to listen to the teachers of the time because they were basically corrupt. He turns everything upside down. And we can look at Jesus' life and see resistance to the political authority at the time. However... I want to share, I believe that one of his last acts during the week of his arrest and crucifixion bring together what Jesus was resisting 
what the midwives were resisting and what Esther was resisting and what you and I should be resisting as followers of Christ. So let's look at Matthew 21, 12 through 17. I will read and you can follow. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the, of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shout, shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called, for, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now this is very famous passage. It's, uh, it's just a couple of verses, and biblical scholars have written books about this passage, and, and pastors do sermons on this passage. And so I'm not going to give it right now a thorough exegetical analysis. However, you know, these few verses can illuminate for us what we should be resisting against and what we should be fighting for. So I thought I would take a few minutes this morning to share, to share my thoughts about it with you. So again, some context here. As you know, the temple was the political and economic heart of Jewish society. So to take action in a temple is both bold and purposeful. It's really attack on the, it's an attack on the Jewish social order. So by disrupting the vital operations of the temple, as Jesus did, and then healing the blind and lame, he's kind of, Jesus is invoking his order and his priorities. And so it, this is actually, it should be noted that this is actually the second time he clears out the temple. But on this occasion, the very week, he would be, be, be crucified what the house of God should be for. He says it should be for prayer. It should be for helping the sick. It should be for healing. These are the things that Jesus cared about. We know this from his ministry. His world order was an entirely different and new thing. And even closer look would, would show us that Jesus did not, he didn't seek to kill or overthrow the religious and political establishment. He was God. He could have done that. No, instead, he confronted them with a whole new world order. He confronted them with the world order we call and he called the kingdom of God. The biblical tradition is rich with resistance, and sometimes resistance can seem like a bad word. It, it gets a bad rep. But I want to remind you that many of the epistles in the New Testament were written by Paul from a prison. Some of the most inspiring, convicting words found in the seminal book, Letters from a Birmingham Jail, come from Dr. Martin Luther King, written while he was in a prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many considered one of the great theologians, wrote some of his, mo his most compelling words while sitting in a prison waiting to die. His words can be found in the book Letters and Papers from Prison. So just to be clear, this morning I'm not talking about just any resistance. So if you've made it with me this far, and I th and think I'm only talking about resistance for resistance' sake. Stay with me for a few minutes because it's much bigger than that. 
The resistance I'm talking about, as shown in the passages I shared with you, is resistance to structures that put people in harm's way. We all know that black men should not be dying just for being pulled over by the side of the road. We know that. We must resist the structures that allow that happen to happen with such frequency. Not because Pastor Deirdre is saying that, but because the Bible has given us examples of those who resisted the structures that put people in harm's way. We all know that immigrants are the fabric and foundation of the United States of America. We know that the Bible clearly tells us that we were all one under God, all his children. We must resist the structural institutions that are being put in place right now and today that criminalize and persecute the immigrant. In parts of Appalachia, in the coal mine areas of Kentucky, there are kids that go to bed after only having one meal for the day. We know Jesus cared about the poor and the marginalized. We must resist the societal structures that perpetuate poverty and sickness in destitute communities. And this is not just any resistance. We are people of influence. We are. I'm going to say it again. If you have gone to college, if you are in college, if you have a home, you can call your own. If you have a job, you are not fearful of losing. If you have health care, if you have access to health care, if you have healthy parents or siblings and children, then chances are in this country you're in a position of influence. In the States, sometimes we get it mixed up. We do acts of charity thinking that is enough. Jesus did not really talk about and live a life of acts of charity. Now, do the acts of charity, but let me say this. We can congratulate ourselves and be praised for the acts of charity, or we can open ourselves up to the life-changing consequences when we actually take a risk, resist, and be proactive towards those that are marginalized, the poor, the widow, the foreigner, those put at risk and harm by institutional and societal structures. Not because Pastor Deirdre is up here saying it, but because Jesus came and showed us a new world order, one that said the first should be last and the last should be first. So, as I finish this morning, I want to remind you again of the midwife and of Esther. They were very unlikely people who changed the life of many people. It was unexpected. They didn't make big plans to change the world. In the midwife's case, they had no money, not not much money. They just knew what was right. They acknowledged the wrong they saw and they decided to act. In this next week, I want all of you to consider the midwives and Esther. What can you do? How is God calling you to be used? Maybe you do not know. Maybe you do know, but you are afraid to take that risk. So, Let me leave you with this. Perhaps this week, think intently about places where resistance is what God calls you to do. Let me be specific. If you are here, chances are you either live, work, study in the great city of Boston, 
are its suburbs. There are systems and structures right here in this place that allow for injustices to happen daily. You don't have to go far. There are immigrants afraid to come out of the darkness for fear that they may be deported right here in Boston. There are marginalized groups who can't find housing, employment, or even health care because of structures that have prevented them from getting access. As Christians, we are called to resist and to fight those structures. I encourage you to find one structure this week and pray on that. Maybe it is working with an advocacy group and using your expertise to make sure that immigrants know their rights. Maybe it is walking alongside a young person from a marginalized group and using your expertise to help them put together a resume, find a suit to wear, to help them with a job interview. Maybe it is walking alongside a family and going with them as they try to rent an apartment so that they are not discriminated against due to their race or socioeconomic status. It is actually the unlikely people doing the unlikely thing sometimes that can change lives and can change nations. Resist and be that unlikely person that God calls us to be. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you today asking you to work through us in our lives no matter where we are at, God. Sometimes we don't know how you've called us to live out your will, Lord. We don't know, but we know if we keep our eyes on you, you will show the way. Lord, sometimes the injustices are so overwhelming. Sometimes they seem so far apart that we can't even figure out how to put our hand in there, Lord. But we know if we look to you and depend on you, that you can open up every way for us. You can show us things, Lord, that we could never think of at our own. You can make the possible impossible, the impossible possible in our own lives. So, Lord, we ask that as we go on this week, Lord, that you do that this week. That we see the impossible become possible. That we don't get overwhelmed by the unjust injustices, but that, in fact, we get excited about, God, what you can do through us, Lord. Use us as your vessel, Lord, in the only way that you can, Lord, in the only way that you know how we don't know we rest on you, Lord. We ask all these things, Lord, in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.